everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So last time we began a new series of episodes thinking about Christian godliness by looking at what I've got in front of me here, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. We're in book three, and this treatise on the life of the Christian man, which is like a uh, mini book within a book, book three, chapters six through ten. And uh, today, I just want to jump straight in. We're at the start of chapter seven, and I'm going to go reasonably slowly through this. That is to say, I'm going to read most of it and then comment on it as I go along and just try and help you to see the logic of it. Because what Calvin's doing here, as I mentioned last time, is he's unpacking the uh, full-orbed biblical theological structure that should underlie the way we think about and the way we go about day-to-day battling against sin and striving for godliness. Scripture does not just give us a bunch of bullet points and then say, try harder. Uh, Scripture does not just give us a stick to whack ourselves over the head with when we fail or some standard that we've got to attain to. Uh, There are elements of that in Scripture, but Scripture is far richer in the the way it encourages us to strive for faithfulness in Christ and godliness and in how it encourages us to think about that task in theological terms and the relationship between the pursuit of godliness and every other aspect of our Christian lives and our relationship with Christ and so on and so forth. And Calvin outlines that just superbly. It's rich and beautiful and wonderful. Chapter 7, if anything, is even better than chapter 6. Chapter 8 is better still, probably, but you'll get to that in a few weeks' time, I take it, uh, if you're still with us. But here goes, chapter 7. The title of the uh, chapter is The Sum of the Christian Life, The Denial of Ourselves. Let me read a bit and then we'll talk about it. Even though the law of God provides the finest and best disposed method of ordering a man's life. Remember what he said last time about the law being a precious teacher, not just uh, something to show us our failings, but to teach us righteousness. Continues, it seemed good to the heavenly teacher to shape his people by an even more explicit plan to that rule which he had set forth in the law. Here then is the beginning of this plan. The duty of believers is, quoting Romans 12, to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And in this consists the lawful worship of him. That's Romans 12, 1. That's the heart of Christian godliness. You know from um, uh, your understanding of Paul's letter to the Romans that it falls roughly into two halves. This is a very elementary outline of Romans. Um, The first 11 chapters are uh, a theologically rich exposition of the gospel and of what God is doing uh, in his people Israel, what he's doing in and through the church, what he's doing in and through uh, the ministry of Christ through the apostles to the world. And in chapter 12, it becomes more applicatory in focus and it begins with this uh, statement of the duty of believers to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. From this is derived, Calvin continues, the basis of the exhortation in Romans 12, that they are not to be conformed to the fashion of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their mind so that they may prove what is the will of God, Romans 12 too. That is to say, if we're going to be living sacrifices, we need to be living sacrifices and sacrifices need to be pure. Sacrifices need to be transformed, just as the old covenant sacrifices were transformed by fire into smoke so that they could be acceptable to God. So our lives would be to be transformed by the fire of the spirit so that they're acceptable to God. So we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices rather than offering the bodies of animals as dead sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, the great thing is this, he says, we are consecrated and dedicated to God in order that we may thereafter think, speak, meditate, and do nothing except to his glory. 
see the sacrificial language again. We're consecrated to God. We're dedicated to God. All this language from the temple background. The Spirit of God so fills you, the Spirit of God so fills us as believers in Christ, that we can offer ourselves, we are called to offer ourselves indeed as sacrifices, consecrated to his service. For a sacred thing may not be applied to profane uses without marked injury to him. So that's the flip side of it. Now that we've been consecrated to the living God, well, you don't go doing profane things with yourself. Okay, so from that, it follows the uh, basic principle that this um, uh, chapter focuses on, the denial of ourselves. And, the, and self-denial, or the denial of ourselves, does not mean what it has come to mean in much contemporary spirituality. In much contemporary spirituality, self-denial means a kind of asceticism or, you know, we talk about denying ourselves chocolate during Lent or something uh, somewhat trivial like that. Well, self-denial goes much deeper, according to Calvin. Here goes, if then we are not our own, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, but the Lord's, well, we're not, that's what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, it is clear what error we must flee and whither we must direct all the acts of our life. And then Calvin expounds the two halves of that expression. We are not our own. We belong to God. So we are not our own, he says. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us, according to the flesh. We're not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. That's what self-denial means, the first half of it. It means not letting our personal concerns, our personal desires, our personal anything shape anything about us. It's a tremendously radical doctrine. And this is Paul expounding what he thinks Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, which then allows us to, or, or causes us to become uh, progressively more and more those consecrated sacrifices, Romans 12, 1, that can be offered to the living God. So we're not our own, that's paragraph. Next paragraph begins, conversely, we are God's, the flip side of this in 1 Corinthians 6. He continues, let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's, let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. It's a very practical thing. We don't belong to ourselves. It's not going to be my wisdom and my will which dictates anything. It's going to be the living God's wisdom, the living God's will that dictates everything to me. We are God's, he continues. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he's not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God, exclamation mark. Calvin's preaching now. Um, you can hear it in his tone. For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. Just think about that for a second. He's now tying this to, you know, what, what's best for us? Um, what's the best way for us to live? It's a pestilence that leads to our destruction that we should follow our own desires and our own will. What God has taught us is to follow his path, his ways. We belong to him, to yield therefore to his uh, will and that that's the most fruitful thing for any part of our lives.
So that's the picture that Calvin creates in at the start of this important chapter. Let's just um, continue reading and um, commenting on it. Practically speaking, then, next paragraph, let this therefore be the first step, that a man depart from himself in order that he may apply the whole force of his ability in the service of the Lord. So this is a common way of thinking about um, the Christian life, isn't it? We, we talk about it as a life of service. Excuse me a moment. We think about service, um, or if you're familiar with the biblical language, it's actually the language of slavery, being a slave to God, being a servant of the living God. And service is one way of capturing this departure from our own will to follow the Lord's will. A slave or a servant does not get to rock up at work at six o'clock in the morning and think, now what would I like to do? I'll look around the farm, I'll look around the ranch, I'll look around the factory or whatever it is and decide what most appeals to me. A servant puts himself entirely at the disposal of his master. That's what service is. But a man departs from himself, I leave myself behind and apply myself wholly to the will of the living God. I call service not only what lies in obedience to God's word, Calvin says, but what turns the mind of man empty of its own carnal sense wholly to the bidding of God's spirit. So you imagine the servant emptying himself of his own desires, carnal sense, and saying to the spirit, what would you have me do? Of course, Calvin isn't thinking of the spirit's bidding in some kind of uh, superficial or subjective sense, but the Spirit of God speaking the word of Christ in and through the scriptures. While it is the first entrance to life, all philosophers were ignorant of this transformation. Paul, uh, Calvin beating up on the philosophers a little bit, but he's with some justification because just appealing to human nature uh, as we perceive it without the help of scripture isn't going to help us to see this, is it? You're not going to be able to see um, the transformation that Christ speaks about that the Spirit is performing in us by looking at the nature of a man as we perceive him in natural terms, which Paul calls renewal of the mind. Uh, again, uh, this is Ephesians 4 on that occasion, and it's related to Romans 12. New sentence from Calvin. For they set up reason alone as the ruling principle in man and think that it alone should be listened to. To it alone, in short, they entrust the conduct of life. Well, that's not how to do Christian godliness, is it? But the Christian philosophy, you know, he's playing on the philosophy idea, the Christian way of thinking, uh, philosophy comes from two words, philos meaning love and sophos meaning wisdom. The Christian love of wisdom uh, bids reason to give way to, submit and subject itself to the Holy Spirit so that man may no longer live, uh, sorry, that man, the man himself may no longer live, but here Christ living and reigning within him. It's a remarkable way of thinking. So you put yourself to death. Well, of course you do, Romans 6, because you've been put to death. We put our desires to death, therefore, and we live in such a way that the spirit of Christ is living in us and through us, and therefore Christ is the one who lives in us. Not me, but Christ in me. You can see this is a deeply um, Paul the Apostle saturated way of thinking about the Christian life. And actually, in a broader context, this is something for another day, the whole shape of the, of this book, book three of Calvin's four book institutes, um, is structured 
with a keen eye to Pauline soteriology, the, the way that Paul the Apostle articulates and outlines um, the Christian doctrine of salvation. And so roughly speaking, um, book three, well, book two says that here's all the stuff that Christ has done to accomplish our redemption. Book three then says, well, that's a nothing to us unless we're somehow united with Christ. How do we get united with Christ? Oh, it's by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit by and through whom we are made one with Jesus so that all that he has becomes ours. And so how should we live? Well, we should be filled with the Spirit and then we're forgiven in Christ, adopted in Christ, we'll uh, be glorified in Christ and we are transformed in Christ by the Spirit who lives within us. Now, how does that take shape in practice? Well, we yield ourselves to the teaching of the Spirit. And I emphasize again, that doesn't mean you sit in the room with your eyes closed and try and wonder what the Spirit's saying to me. You reflect prayerfully on the teaching of Scripture and you talk with your friends and you listen to the preaching of the Word and you read literature which will help you and you listen to Calvin even and you allow yourself to be shaped and informed not by yourself but by the living God. So that's the first section in this chapter. We're not going to get through the whole chapter today. We've got how many? We've done 15 minutes already almost. Um, 14 minutes, but um, uh, we'll get through a few sections and pick up next time. Section two. From this also follows this second point, Calvin says, that we seek not the things that are ours, but those which are of the Lord's will and will serve to advance his glory. This obviously follows from what he's been saying already, but Calvin wants to flesh it out in more detail. Pardon me a moment. He continues. This is also evidence of great progress. <laughs> this is um, this is going to be encouraging. Okay, Calvin doesn't often uh, highlight things um, which you can be encouraged about. So, what would be even for Calvin, who is a fairly um, he has fairly high standards for himself and for others in terms of what we ought to be striving for? What would be evidence of great progress in our walk with Christ? Well, here goes that almost forgetful of ourselves. Surely subordinating our self-concern, we try faithfully to devote our zeal to God and to his commandments. So I, I kind of want to encourage you here um, just to think practically. There may have been occasions in the past where um, you have instinctively, your, your spirit-transformed instincts have led you to some act of service or kindness or something towards somebody else in the church. I'm just thinking of the situation here at All Saints in recent um, weeks and months. We've had a, we had a, an outbreak of COVID a few uh, weeks ago. Many churches did. You probably had one in your church if you're not at All Saints. And I was not inundated, but steadily peppered with emails from people saying, hey, uh, we got some food. We'd love to take it round to anybody who, who uh, would appreciate a, a prepared meal so they you can lie in bed and feel terrible rather than having to get up and cook. Um, please let us know if there's anybody who would uh, like uh, that kind of provision, that kind of service. And we've got people then driving all over Fort Worth with frozen lasagnas, taking them to uh, the houses of folks in the congregation and elsewhere who uh, you know need a bit of help for a few days. Now, if, if, if that's the kind of thing that you remember doing, okay, I, I, I want to encourage you. Uh, if that's something that you think, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I, I thought about doing that and I did that. Or if something similar to that, you forgetful of yourself, you think, how can I serve? How can I subordinate my self-concern and try and devote my zeal to God and his commandments? That's great. Calvin wants to encourage you. Not that you become complacent or self-righteous or pompous about it. You know, how many frozen lasagnas did you distribute during COVID week? But, you know, 
Calvin isn't going to encourage you very often, right? Not explicitly. So take it when it comes. And I want to encourage you too. It's a scriptural thing to think, actually, yeah, the Spirit of God is doing something in me which is making me not the man, not the woman, that in Adam, in and of myself, I would have remained. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, For when scripture bids us leave off self-concern, it not only erases from our minds the yearning to possess, the desire for power and the favour of men, but it also uproots ambition and all craving for human glory and other more secret plagues. Scripture actively transforms us. This is part of, this connects to what Calvin thinks scripture is and what it does. Calvin does not think scripture is information. Uh, Calvin thinks of scripture as a window in and through which we see the work of God and um, the person of Christ and the lives that we ought to be living and what God is doing in the world. And actually in and through which God is speaking to us and transforming us so that we become more like him. Scripture is not just words in that sense of information. Scripture is the medium through which a relationship is sustained in the sense that words are how relationships are sustained. And so um, scripture uproots those ungodly desires. The word of God actually does that. And scripture similarly drives us to uh, reshape our desires in more spirit-oriented ways because the spirit is the author of scripture. He continues, Accordingly, the Christian must surely be so disposed and minded that he feels within himself that it is with God he has to deal throughout his life. That's one of my favorite sentences in this section. That's the the goal to strive towards, right? This is, I'm feeling every moment that I'm dealing with God. I'm responding to God. It's his word that is animating me. It's him that I'm seeking to follow. It's with God that I have to do. Um, And therefore, with the other people around me. So dealing with God means that I deal appropriately with my friends, my family. I'm relating rightly to my wife and my husband and my my friends at church and my pastor. And if you're a pastor with your congregation, with your employer, with your neighbours. But you're dealing with them in a way which reflects the fact that the primary audience and the primary relationship in your life is actually with the living God. So it's not that I have no concern for my employer, but all the things that I do for my employer reflect the fact that it's with the living God that I have to do in my daily life, which makes me a much better employee than if I was just trying to deal with him. Because if I was just trying to deal with him, it would be very easy, a very short step for me to be thinking, now, uh, here's me, the employee, how can I advance my interests within this firm? Whereas you'll discover that your interests will actually be advanced if, in the long run, you're seeking to serve the living God in and through those relationships. In this way, Calvin continues, as he will refer all he has to God's decision and judgment, because it's with God that we have to do, so will he refer his whole intention of mind scrupulously to him. God is the one who's going to judge us. God is the one who's going to decide our destiny. Therefore, it's him that we're thinking about. Am I pleasing the living God? For he who has learned to look to God in all things that he must do, at the same time avoids all vain thoughts, This, then, is that denial of self which Christ enjoins with such great earnestness upon his disciples at the outset of their service. Now, this is a 
uh, Matthew 16, Mark 8 reference. Anyone who wants to come after me must take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Now, take up his cross, Calvin will talk about in the next chapter. But the denial of self that Jesus talks about there in those famous texts is not to do with, uh, I'm going to deny myself uh, that second cup of coffee in the morning, or I'm going to deny myself chocolate during Lent, or I'm going to deny myself that second uh, dessert at Christmas time. It's not that kind of silly worldly asceticism. There may be a time where it's a good idea to fast, where it's a good idea not to have that second cup of coffee in the morning. But that's not the denial of self that Christ is talking about or that Calvin is talking about. The denial of self is not denying things to myself in terms of particular pleasures, say. It's the denial of myself in the sense of my will, my decisions, my betterment. And it's the devotion to the living God in the sense of being committed to do what he says. That's self-denial. Not denying myself pleasures, but denying my willfulness and the ungodliness that goes along with that. When it has once taken possession of their hearts, Calvin continues, it leaves no place at all either to pride or arrogance or ostentation, then either to avarice or desire or lasciviousness or effeminacy or to other evils that our self-love spawns. Our self-love would have us indulge all those things at various times, but denial of self or self-love means that we devote ourselves to the living God and what he wants. Now Calvin continues throughout the, the uh, rest of this uh, paragraph, there's half a page or so there, um, and he's just expounding a little bit more of that theme uh, uh, just in those remaining sentences. I want to move on to uh, the next section, uh, section three, and we'll look at this uh, today. That'll probably take us up to about 30 minutes, and then you're done for this week, and we'll come back next week and continue. Um, in this uh, third section in chapter seven, Calvin turns to Titus chapter two um, and verses uh, 11 to 14, which is a significant biblical text for uh, highlighting some of the, um, if you like, the, the overarching virtues that will then help us to deal with particular issues of godliness. I mentioned um, in the previous episode that what Calvin is concerned with here is not specific situations. What should I do if that? What should I do in this situation here? He's concerned with the broad pr principles that shape our overall lives of uh, striving for faithfulness and greater godliness. But nonetheless, there are they're kind of intermediate, uh, overarching dispositions. Let's fly in front of me here, God. Uh, uh, that lie between godliness as an overall stance and the specifics uh, of everyday life. So if you think of it like this, you've got be godly, and then you've got. Um, uh, what should I do if my employer asks me to be dishonest? Right? There are very nitty-gritty on one hand, and on the other hand, it's, it's just broad issues. Well, in between, there are some of these virtues, which, um, and Calvin is going to talk a little bit about some of this. Anyway, so section three. In another place, Paul more clearly, although briefly, delineates the individual parts of a well-ordered life. As we've been saying. The grace of God has appeared, he says, quoting Titus 2.11 and following, bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright and godly lives in the present age. Those three uh, imperatives, uh, sober, upright, godly, three adjectives 
Um, he'll come back to those in a second. Awaiting our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Just a complete aside here. This is one of those texts. I'm not entirely sure Calvin has uh, translated this in quite how I would do myself. Uh, and most Bible translations have got this right. Um, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is a passing reference to Jesus Christ's deity. Um, uh, without even flinching and without even blinking or feeling it necessary to explain it, Paul is taking for granted the deity of Christ. Our great God and Saviour, who's that? Oh, Jesus Christ is our God and Saviour. So it's not God and, separately, Saviour Jesus Christ. God and Saviour applies to Jesus Christ. Just an aside, it's... Um, Next time Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at the door, show them that in your Bible, not theirs, because in theirs it is deliberately mistranslated. Anyway, we, we, we digress. Um, uh, Calvin continues, For after he proffered the grace of God to hearten us, in Titus 2.11, the grace of God which brings salvation, in order to pave the way for us to worship God truly, he removed the two obstacles that chiefly hinder us, namely ungodliness, to which by nature we are too much inclined, and second, worldly desires which extend more widely so the first thing um, getting a little bit more nitty-gritty Paul says let's get rid of this ungodliness let's get rid of this worldly desires what does he mean by that Calvin says by ungodliness in indeed he not only means superstition but includes also whatever contends against the earnest fear of God superstition which is worth thinking about that that was an issue in Calvin's day Perhaps particularly, um, he's coming out of um, medieval Catholicism and there's a whole bunch of people doing the same thing. And um, there are a bunch of religious superstitions associated with that, which could have all kinds of a grip on people's lives. And there are somewhat analogous things we need to deal with today in some circumstances. So ungodliness is the first thing that's removed. Worldly desires or worldly lusts, he continues. These are the second. Worldly lusts are also equivalent to the passions of the flesh. And here, the editors have added a whole bunch of Bible references, predictably Galatians 5 following, uh, 16 following, 2 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 John 2. Thus, with reference to both tables of the law, he commands us to put off our own nature and to deny whatever our reason will dictate. Uh, we could talk about the two tables of the law Ah, brief word about that. So Calvin and other some other expositors think that um, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables, one concerning man and one concerning God. And in one sense, there is a division there. Where does the division come? Is it between the first four and the last six or the first five and the last five? There's a debate there. I think it's the first five and the last five, but ask me another day. Um, and sometimes that's connected with the view that the two tablets of stone that Moses had the first tablet had the first table on it. The second tablet had the second table on it. That's probably not true. Probably both tablets had both tables on them. But bottom line is, when this phrase is used, um, the reason for using it in this context is to refer to our duty to God and to man. That distinction is really clearly recognised by most interpreters of the Ten Commandments. Obviously, everything is a duty to God in the end, but the first bunch of commandments principally concern God directly, whilst the second concern God indirectly because they're principally directed at our relationships with other people, like murder and adultery and stealing, you steal from other people, whereas idolatry 
or worshipping other gods and so on and so forth, or keeping the Sabbath, is uh, a duty directly to God. So you see that distinction there. And Calvin's point is, uh, in relation to God and relation to, and in relation to people, he commands us to put off our own nature and to deny whatever our reason, fallen, ungodly, instinctive reason, will dictate. Now, he limits all action of life to three parts. This is an exegetical claim that sober, upright, and godly is a kind of sum total of all that Calvin is strive. Uh, Paul, sorry, in Titus two is urging us to strive for, which is a reasonable claim given the breadth of these um, virtues. So let's look at these virtues um, uh, in turn. Of these, Calvin says, soberness doubtless denotes chastity and temperance, as well as a pure and frugal use of temporal goods and patience in poverty. You see that now Calvin is starting to say, these intermediate virtues that lie between the general godliness and the super specific, what do I do if, there's these principles of life, these meta-ethical, not not technically meta-ethical, but these overarching um, principles of of godliness. Um, Chastity, obviously what he's talking about there is to do with uh, sexual chastity. Temperance, probably in relation to alcohol and perhaps food as well. Um, Pure and frugal use of temporal goods. How do we indulge the physical things that we have around us? Are we in control of our desires or do we let them control us? We talked about this actually last um, Wednesday, a Bible study, thinking about Ephesians 5, 3 and following, where uh, there are some principles that Paul highlights where he's talking about how our desires are to be. We've got to learn to control our desires generally um, and um, then we can uh, control our desires in relation to specific things. Now, righteousness embraces all the duties of equity in order that to each one be rendered what is his own. Righteousness is um, most a, an issue of um, commercial propriety. Let's render to each one his due, but commercial in the broadest possible sense. What do people deserve? Let's be, let's treat people rightly. And of course, if you ask what people deserve, you should ask what do they deserve as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as those created by God, as those whom he loves and Christ redeemed. And they deserve, well, they're members of our body. They deserve what we would give to ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself, etc. And then finally, there follows godliness, which joins us in true holiness with God when we are separated from the iniquities of the world, causing to view the, um, the picture of the Spirit of God uniting us with God through Christ so as to make us one with that holy Saviour. When these things are joined together by an inseparable bond, they bring about complete perfection, perfection in the sense of maturity and stability. But nothing is more difficult than having bidden farewell to the reason of the flesh and having bridled our desires to devote ourselves to God and our brethren and to meditate amidst earth's filth upon the life of the angels. The life of the angels there, I don't think he means meditating on what angels do, but on uh, the the proximity to God that the angels have have and therefore to the holiness that they witness. Um, Consequently, Paul, in order to extricate our minds from all snares, recalls us to the hope of blessed immortality, reminding us that we strive not in vain, Um, 1 Thessalonians 5. So um, this is, uh, this explains Paul's reference in Titus 2 to um, uh, 
the present age and the, our awaiting our blessed hope. So the life of the angels probably has reference to that too. That actually what we should be thinking of is not where are we now in this filthy world where we're surrounded by earth's filth, quote unquote, but where are we going to? We're, we're moving towards resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth and we want to conform our desires to that. For as Christ our Redeemer once appeared, again echoing the language of Titus 2, so in his final coming he will show the fruit of the salvation brought forth by him. In this way he scatters all the allurements that becloud us and prevents us from aspiring as we ought to, uh, scatters all the allurements that becloud us and prevent us from aspiring as we ought to heavenly glory. Christ has scattered all those things away. Nay, he teaches us to travel as pilgrims in this world, that our celestial heritage may not perish or pass away. So there you see, again, what he's doing. He's connecting the pursuit of these uh, overarching ethical virtues, the priorities or the shape our lives. He's connecting that pursuit to, hey, where are we headed? And what ought we really to care about? Well, that brings us to the end of section three, and that brings us also to slightly over 30 minutes. So we're done for the day, uh, done for this week, rather. Um, we will be back again next week, Lord willing, and we'll continue our way through this uh, with section four. Uh, if you want to get a copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's available. You can get it. Um, you can get an old translation online, but you can get a new translation for $50, $60 for the two volumes. It is worth every cent, and I encourage you to do so. But uh, that'll do us for now. The Lord bless you. And see you next time. Bye for now.